Welcome to Strength for the Journey from First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu at Ko'olau. Our Hope Restored Sermon Series continues. Today we focus on Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 17, and verses 22 through 25. First Pres Senior Pastor Dan Chun teaches us about communion in this sermon called The Last Supper. Today's message is on the sacrament of communion, which, as you saw, was next up as we walked through the Gospel of Mark in our Hope Restored series. Now, to some, that might sound really boring, but you will hopefully see in the end that it culminates thousands of years of history all into one ceremony that can give you so much hope for everyday living, especially those who are going through a very tough time right now. For it's about our friend and Lord, Jesus. To fully understand communion and how it applies to us, we begin with an all-important historical, biblical context that you may not know. All of the Old Testament actually points to the life of Jesus Christ. It's not two separate stories of the Old Testament here and the New Testament over here. It's all intertwined, and the Old Testament continually points to the coming of the Messiah in ways that might surprise people. In Andy Croft and Mike Kilovacci's book, Storylines, one gets a map to understand how the Bible is one really big story of Jesus' story. His story, the story of Jesus, is seen in all of the biblical history. Hence, history is his story. Let me show several examples of how the Old Testament repeatedly points to Jesus of the New Testament. Take the story of Noah. It's about one righteous man who builds an ark. Only Noah's family believes Noah and his warnings about an impending flood that would kill off all of humanity unless they heed the word of God. So they get on the ark with plenty of animals, which unfortunately included mosquitoes and scorpions. Like, why, Lord, did you want two of every kind of creature? And the flood comes, and all are killed except Noah's family. The, The family is saved, think about this, not because they were righteous, but because they were attached to Noah, who was righteous. Hence, we get our first signpost to Jesus. Jesus is the only real righteous man on earth, and whoever chooses to follow him or attach yourself to him will be saved and sheltered in the safety of his salvation as symbolized by the ark that Noah built. Then there's the Old Testament story of Abraham, who in in a most disturbing episode, is told by God to take his son Isaac to a region called Moriah, and there he is to kill his son. And I've never liked this story. I mean, why would a loving God tell Abraham to do such a terrible act? But hang in there. Spoiler alert. It all works out okay in the end. So let me tell you the fuller meaning, which will help us understand the deeper purpose of this passage, and hopefully we'll be a bit more comforted. Here's the story, and you might remember it. Abraham gets on a donkey and takes his son Isaac to cut some wood to be used for a, um, oh, he did not to take the cut wood. They brought the cut wood with them to be used for a burnt sacrificial offering to God, and God tells them to go to the land of Moriah. On the third day, they go to Moriah. And Abraham takes the wood for the burnt offering 
puts it on his son to carry as they walk, leaving the servants with the donkey. And they're probably walking up to a, a lower mountain slope. His innocent young son says to his dad, so the fire and wood are here, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering for the sins of the community? And Abraham says, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Then they come to a special place in Moriah where God told Abraham to go. Abraham builds an altar, lays the wood on it, and then he binds his son, lays his son on the wood on the altar. Then Abraham gets a knife ready to kill his son. And for years I have thought, this is the most hideous, most horrible story in the Bible. I mean, what kind of God would ask Abraham to do this? I mean, I hate this story. But then the story takes a twist. It unfolds and it points to a deep, unexpected theological meaning. Before Abraham does anything with the knife, God sends an angel to Abraham to immediately stop him. It was never, ever God's intention to have Isaac killed. So God is playing out a scene that points to Jesus? How does that work? Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in a nearby thicket. He took the ram, a male lamb, a male sheep, and made the ram the burnt offering instead of Isaac. Abraham called the place Moriah, the Lord will provide. He said, on this mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now, pretty terrible story. Until you realize it's another signpost to Jesus. Where is Moriah? Surprise, surprise. It's what we know today as Jerusalem. Thousands of years after this incident, the Bible tells of Jesus entering Jerusalem on a donkey. Same place. Hence, it's kind of a deja vu. Different father, the heavenly father, leads his son Jesus to ride a donkey into the exact same area that Abraham was told to go with his son Isaac. This son, Jesus, also had to carry wood on his shoulders, but this wood was a wooden beam. It was a cross that he was going to get killed on. As it took Abraham three days to go to Moriah, So it took three days for Jesus to be arrested, killed, and rise from the dead. 2,000 years later, as Abraham said, on this mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And God provided his innocent son, Jesus, the ram, the male lamb of God, for the offering that would be sacrificed for all of the sin of humankind, you and me. God had planned this from the very beginning. Abraham and Isaac's story was a foretelling of the Messiah to come. And it laid the foundation for that story to be told over and over again in the Old Testament, giving us signposts. Andy Croft and Mike Pilavachi wrote this great line, God knew what was going to happen. He knew what it was going to cost him. He knew what you were going to cost. And then he went ahead anyway. So you take the story of Noah. You take the story of Abraham, and then there's the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. Joseph was, again, a righteous man, falsely accused of a crime, put into prison, right? 
Two criminals came to join him in prison, just as thousands of years later, Jesus, also falsely accused, served his sentence on a cross with two criminals on either side of him, all three of them crucified. In Joseph's story, one of the criminals was saved and the other was condemned. In Jesus' story, one criminal was saved because of his faith and the other one was not. After Joseph got out of prison, he became the right-hand man of Pharaoh. Joseph ended up, because of this power, ended up saving his family, which eventually became the holy nation of Israel. After spending time in prison, Jesus went to the cross, died, and then ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven. And Jesus saved the true holy nation, the followers of Jesus. There are more than 300 prophecies in the Old Testament of a Messiah that would be fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Now, we can spend all day looking at other signposts from the Old Testament that all point to Jesus, but I want to focus right now on Moses, who gets us directly to the Last Supper, our topic for today, and to what we know today as communion. In the story of Moses, God hears the cries of the Israelites who are enslaved and are suffering under Pharaoh. God decides to save them, Hence begins another parallel to how God wants to save a suffering people through one righteous person. God sends Moses and appears to him in a burning bush that doesn't really burn. And Moses asks a very practical question, who shall I say has sent me? And God replies, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Call me I am. And Moses is thinking, say I am sent me? Like that really doesn't help me, Lord. No, he didn't say that. But like I am that I am sent me and here I am. So many centuries later, God hears the cry of humanity who are slaves to sin. And through one man, Jesus, God decides again to save a people. When Jesus' main detractors in the Bible, they're called the Pharisees, say to him in a very sarcastic tone, well, who do you say you are? Jesus replies, before Abraham was born, I am. And in hearing this, the Pharisees pick up stones and rocks to kill him because he used a sacred title that they only use for God, I am. Jesus was indeed saying, I am that I am. I am God, fully human, fully divine, the one and only Christ. I am the same God who talked to Noah, who talked to Abraham, who talked to Joseph and to Moses and now to us. In the story of Moses, God saves the Israelites from Pharaoh specifically by sending an angel of death to kill off all the firstborn of the Egyptians as the tenth plague to convince the stiff-necked Pharaoh to let my people go. But in order to save the Israelites, God instituted through Moses a ceremonial dinner which we know today as Passover. It's the Passover meal. God told Moses to have each family kill an innocent lamb for Passover, to take the blood of the lamb and paint it on the top and the sides of the doorposts of their home. And God told Moses that when the angel of the Lord passes through the town to strike down the Egyptians, he will pass over the houses with blood on the doorposts, hence the name Passover. 
And while the Israelites were inside having this special dinner, the children may ask, why is this night so different from other nights? Why is it so special? And God told Moses to tell his children and the adults to give this answer. It is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites and spared our homes. Exodus 12. Now, flash forward some 1,600 years to the last supper in the upper room in the last week of Jesus' life. They are having what? A Passover meal. And essentially, Jesus will be telling them that God's judgment will pass over any family who believes in him and therefore has the blood of Jesus in them. It's, a, in a sense, a spiritual transfusion of Jesus' blood into us. You have to have the right blood type to be saved. So hang on to hear how this works. Typically, Passover for the Jews is an eight-day observance, begins on a Monday with a Passover or Seder meal. And typically, a Passover meal, even today in an observing um, Jewish home, would have 15 elements to it. Uh, But I'm just going to talk about four main elements, as I don't have time to talk about each of the 15 elements in detail, unless you want to miss Super Bowl. Okay, so number one is unleavened bread, matzah. You're familiar with that, right? And why matzah? Um, Why unleavened? Because when Pharaoh um, let the Israelites go from Egypt, they had to hurry in case Pharaoh had changed his mind. And so they had zero time to bake their bread. There was no time to wait for the yeast to rise. So they left with just the dough that had no yeast or leaven in them, which is why they're called unleavened bread. And the Jews called it matzah, for which they use for Passover meals, and which today I and the other pastors who do communion also use this unleavened bread. Um, In the New Testament, Jesus would warn his disciples, remember, beware of the leaven, you know, beware of the leaven of the bread, which represent the sin that the law-making Pharisees would promote through their legalism. So the unleavened bread would remind us to live in the spirit of God and not with rules and rituals and regulations. Okay, then comes bitter herbs served in a Passover meal to remind Jews of today that the ancient Israelites were slaves in Egypt that made their lives very bitter. And God saved them from that. And during a Passover meal, the herbs are dipped twice. First, parsley is dipped once in salt water to remind them of the the green of springtime. And then people dip the bitter herbs in a a sweet... um, Charoseth, it's called, a sweet paste made of nuts and fruit to remind them that their forefathers and foremothers were able to withstand bitter suffering because it was sweetened by the hope of freedom. Then comes the drinking of four cups of wine throughout the hours-long Seder meal. And, uh, and you'll know from our passage that they share the same cup. It's not like They're all having four cups. So they're cups of tremendous symbolism and significance. So let's walk through that. Normally during a Passover meal, these four cups of wine are consumed at different times, each symbolizing something very important about the faith. The cup of sanctification, 
starts out, stands for how God brought the Jews from the enslavement of the Egyptians. Then the cup of judgment stands for how God freed them from bondage. Then the cup of redemption stands for how God redeemed them, forgave their sins. And then finally, the cup of praise stands for how they are to celebrate God. Now, how did the Passover meal during the Last Supper foretell the coming of Jesus? What did it mean that Jesus himself was leading the Passover meal during what is called the Last Supper? Here's how it all converges. Jesus was, in essence, saying to the disciples during the Last Supper that all those elements are going to come together and they're going to come together in me. I'm the fulfillment of it all. So the unleavened bread, matzah, is again equated with sin. And so unleavened bread, it represents Jesus who is without sin. He said, remember the Gospel of John, I am, I am the bread of life. And, and he who comes to me will never be hungry. And he whoever believes in me will never thirst. Parsley. Jesus suffered greatly to save us from our sins. He knows the bitter pain even before we cry out to him. Then sweet Charoses reminded them of the sweet hope in Christ in the midst of suffering. As for the cups of of wine, when Jesus spoke about the cup during the Last Supper, he was probably holding the third cup, the cup of redemption. That Jesus is the one who redeems us. Highly symbolic. He made it even more powerful when he said, and whenever you drink this cup, this third cup, do so in remembrance of me, the wine symbolic of my blood shed for you. And yes, with my sacrificial blood and the life I offer, you will never thirst. Now it's very interesting. If you read the gospel accounts of the Last Supper, they never talk about lamb which is like a very essential part of a meal. Tim Keller would say there was no lamb on the table because the lamb Jesus Christ was at the table. Jesus was the one who would be killed to take away all the sin of the world, our sin. Jesus was saying during the Last Supper before he died, I am the Lamb of God who will give my life for you, I'll be tortured, I'll be bound, I'll be blindfolded, I'll be punched, I'll be stabbed, I'll be whipped, and then finally crucified, I will give my life for you. Now, you hear all this in some of the past stories in the Old Testament, and you're, you may think, man, I don't, I don't get it. I mean, why did Jesus have to sacrifice his life for us? I mean, what kind of gory God is this? I mean, why does it have to be blood shed? Why have someone killed It would make more sense if God just loved us and we'd just be happy that way. Don't need all that gore unless, worse yet, God is some primitive savage that has some kind of weird, ancient, sick desire that he needs to be appeased with blood. We might even come to the conclusion of who needs a violent God who sacrifices his life, his blood for my sake? But here's where we really have to think it through, okay? Hang in there with me. When you talk about love, I mean real love, okay? Not Hallmark card love. Real love, genuine, authentic, enduring, unconditional love. You can't talk about real love 
without talking about a sacrifice. Jesus sacrificed his life for us. You don't really love a person unless you've suffered for them. And maybe even through a substitutionary sacrifice for them. If you only love nice people, anyone can do that. There's no cost for that. No sacrifice. Anyone can love somebody super nice. I mean, you could lead a sheltered life and just find out who nice people are and hang out with them. Try and do that. But if you try to love someone who is not lovable, who is prickly, who has needs, who has challenges, issues, then you know you will have to love them sacrificially. If your friend is always super nice, there's no love or sacrifice to love the already lovable. But if there's someone in your family or in your group of friends who is wounded emotionally or has scars from past relationships and who at times they don't act in a loving way or they act very sinfully, then you know you will have to sacrifice to love them. And you could be wiped out. You'll feel that you've lost blood. You know, good parents would die for their children. They would shed blood for their children. So the essence of real love is sacrifice. Blood, sweat, and tears. And speaking of blood in ancient Israel, get this. If you made a covenant to another person, you were to cut an animal in half. And then the split animal, and then you would walk in between the two split animals. And in essence, in making a covenant, you're saying, if I break this promise, may what happened to this animal cut in half happen to me. Oh, pretty graphic, huh? So knowing this, if you, later, if you turn to Genesis 15, Abraham wonders out loud to God, are you, are you going to bless me? Are you really going to hang in there with me? How will I know that's really going to happen? And amazingly, the great holy God, who doesn't owe this puny human being anything, he says, okay, I'll show you how I will always stand with you. So he said to Abraham, kill a couple of animals, set the pieces of animals out, so they're like split in two. Moses does that. And then, get this, a smoking torch comes flying in midair. Now, I know this sounds like Harry Potter, but this is real. It's God in the smoking torch. That's like a pillar of fire, a pillar of smoke uh, that led the Israelites. Robert Alter, a Jewish scholar, says that this passage is saying that God himself, the holy God who doesn't need to prove anything to some puny human, is taking an oath, a blood oath, and says, I will love you and stand by you even if it kills me. Basically, in the Last Supper, Passover meal, God was saying, I am the bread, which is my body. I am the cup, and the wine is my blood, and I'm willing to die for you to keep my promise that I'm going to bless you. Or as Jesus says at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, lo, I am with you always. That's heavy. At the Last Supper, Jesus was making a covenant with us that he will be with us. And he says, I will not eat or drink again until I get as many of you as possible into my Father's kingdom. 
So if you're going through a painful time today, know that God is saying, I am all in for you. Will you trust me? Or as we said during Christmas Eve, will you fall on me and know that you're secure in me? Have faith in me. It's God making a promise to us. Again, I love what Tim Keller says. The gospel is, is that you depend on his commitment to you, not your commitment to him. And that's why we sing, great is thy faithfulness, not great is my faithfulness. Your faithfulness may not make it through tough times, but God's will. And we know we follow Jesus because he is faithful to keep his covenant for us, to us, even unto death. Now, the sacrament of communion is about a best friend giving his life for us. It's about God, our Lord, dying for us to give us a chance for a great life here on earth and for eternity. Now, you can see that communion is no small thing. It is rich in meaning, starting in the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament, all the way till now. So the final thing I want to say about communion is that we believe that whenever we celebrate the sacrament of communion, somehow Jesus is actually here participating at the table and that somehow supernaturally that happens and Jesus is more here in this room than at other times. And hence we need to take this very seriously. So how seriously? The Bible says, you ready for this? We could get sick or die if we mess around with Holy Communion. Sorry to shock you about this. I'm your pastor. I'm warning you what the scripture says. So pay attention to this. Participate in communion as a follower of Jesus with reverence. Don't go through the motions. Don't be nonchalant. Now, why do I know that? Why do I think the Bible says that? Well, if we go to um, 1 Corinthians, and we hear what the Apostle Paul was writing to the first century Corinthian church, because those Christians, can you believe it? They're coming to the Last Supper being gluttons and heavy drinkers, totally missing the point. So Paul wrote this passage, and I'm going to read from uh, uh, the message, which is a paraphrase. And here's what he says to them. And then I find that you bring your divisions to worship. You come together, and instead of eating the Lord's Supper... You bring in a lot of food from the outside and make pigs of yourselves. Some are left out and go home hungry. Others have to be carried out too, drink, too drunk to walk. I can't believe it. Don't you have your own homes to eat and drink in? Why would you stoop to desecrating God's church? Why would you actually shame God's poor? I would never have believed you would stoop to this, and I'm not going to stand by and say nothing. So let me go over with you again exactly what goes on in the Lord's Supper and why it's so centrally important. I received my instructions from the Master himself and passed them on to you. The master, Jesus, on the night of his betrayal, took bread, having given thanks, which is a phrase, Eucharistia, where we get Eucharist. He broke it and said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this to remember me. And after supper, he did the same thing with the cup. He said, this, is, this cup is my blood, my covenant with you. And every time you drink this cup, remember me. 
What you must solemnly realize is that every time you eat this bread and every time you drink this cup, you reenact in your words and action the death of the master. You'll be drawn back to this meal again and again until the master returns. You must never let familiarity breed contempt. Anyone who eats the bread or drinks the cup of the master irreverently is like part of the crowd that jeered and spit on him at his death. Is that the kind of remembrance you want to be part of? So examine your motives. Test your heart. Come to this meal in holy awe. If you give no thought, or worse, don't care, about the broken body of the master when you eat and drink, you're running the risk of serious consequences. And that's why so many of you, even now, are listless and sick, and others have gone to an early grave. More and more different translations in the original language it says and some have died if we get this straight now we won't have to be straightened out later on so better to be confronted by the master now than to face a fiery confrontation later so my friends when you come together to the Lord's table be reverent and courteous with one another If you're so hungry that you can't wait to be served, go home and get a sandwich. Again, paraphrase. But by no means risk turning this meal into an eating and drinking binge or a family squabble. It's a spiritual meal. A love feast. Again, this is the word of the Lord. So friends, you now know the fuller meaning of communion. You know too much now. The Last Supper, as it was, has called, now becomes what is called the Lord's Supper because it's all about Jesus. And communion is a highly meaningful sacrament of our faith. And to be part of it, like the elders and deacons who serve us, the elements, is an honor that we regularly reenact the Lord's Supper. So now, as the elders and deacons get the elements of the bread and, and the cups to distribute for communion, I want to remember, have us remember that this sacrifice, in essence, is about just remembering that our best friend, our best friend died for us, Jesus. And that's why we want to do it over and over again. He told us to do it, and so we gladly do it. Have you ever done something um, every year because you fondly remember a loved one who sacrificed or, or suffered for you or for God's cause? For some, it might be visiting a gravesite, or for some, it's drinking a beverage or raising a toast to a deceased friend, or maybe it's for a buddy who gave his or her life for a, a past uh, war defending this country. For me, um, every July, I smoke a cigar to remember my dear friend, Don Parker. Um, he is a man who had a literal dream that led us to Ko'ola, and we didn't know where God wanted us to move, and... He passed away some years ago. He, along with Ron Matthew and Freddie Noah, spearheaded the move from Ke'eaomoku to Ko'ola. And Don Parker never got to see the growth of more than a 1,000 people come to be part of our community. He suffered and sacrificed trying to make the dream true. 
And after he died, his wife gave me his cigars and his humidor. That's the container uh, for his cigars to keep them moist. And, you know, he and I said that when we found the place where God wanted us to move from our Makiki campus, we would smoke a cigar to celebrate. Something I had never done before, but I said I would do that. I made a covenant. I split animals in half, and I said I'd do it. Pretty amazing. So after the deal was done, Don and Ron Matthew and Ted Odoguro, was there somebody else? And I smoked a cigar at the 18th hole. And every year since then, I have smoked a cigar in his memory around July 16, which is when he died. And in essence... You know, we can talk about communion, high theological, you know, academic, historical terms, but it's basically remembering a friend, the Savior of the world, who died and sacrificed his life for us that we might have life. It's also a time he told us that receive forgiveness of our sins, but that we should forgive others. Forgive us our debts as we forgive the debtors of others. So here it is, a time of holy awe, communion. On the night that our Lord was betrayed, bitter herbs. He took a piece of unleavened bread similar to this, and after having blessed it, he then broke it. And he looked at all of his buddies, followers, and said, every time you eat of this bread, do so in remembrance of me. Remember what I have done. And then in the same manner, he picked up a cup and said, every time you drink of this cup, and we believe it's with a third cup, the cup of atonement, the cup of redemption, he says, when you drink this cup, do so in remembrance of me. Because my blood, symbolized by the wine, was shed for your sake. And so, Lord, we come to you today so grateful for what you've done. We are here to give thanks and to say boldly, we have remembered you. Gracious God, thank you so much. You have always been there for us. It is true, lo, I'm with you always. You have stood by your covenant to us. And may we always respond in faith. You love us so much that even, Jesus, when you were here on earth, you gave us a prayer that we would say regularly. You said if we said it often, it would balance us, it would keep things in perspective. We today call it the Lord's Prayer, which we now want to stand and say to you, saying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Before my final blessing, I just want to again encourage you that if you have a prayer concern, if you would like to meet with our prayer team, they'll be in front of the cross or in front of the choir risers, and whatever your concern may be, they would love to lift that up to the Lord. And now to all of you, I have a blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and its countenance be upon you. And may you know deep in your heart the wonderful sacrificial love of God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 
May you always know how great is His faithfulness to us. In Christ's name, amen. Communion Sunday is a day to remember the sacrifice Jesus paid on the cross for us all. He died so that we might have life. If you'd like to hear this sermon again, you can listen to and download this and other sermons from the First Prayers website, fpchawaii.org. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Join us at one of our worship services on campus at 45550 Ole Road, Kaneohe, Hawaii, 96744. We meet Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11.11. Follow First Prez on Twitter and Facebook. Download the brand new First Prez app. Watch First Prez sermon videos on our website and on Facebook. If you need more, you can call us at 808-532-1111. For Pastor Dan Chun and the entire staff at First Prez, I'm Michael Shishido. Until next time, God bless you and thank you for listening. Strength for the Journey is copyright 2019 and produced by the Media Ministry of First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu at Ko'olau.